0: This morning we are continuing our series through the book of Exodus and we have come to uh, one of those passages that we often deem a key passage, uh, the Ten Commandments. Uh, Last week we gave some background uh, with respect to the law, uh, some subjects that are important to uh, see the law in light of before we simply dive into it. And this morning I want actually just to deal with the preface of uh, the Decalogue, the preface of the Ten Commandments. Uh, It is often overlooked and not uh, elevated and esteemed in its importance as it ought to be. And so it demands our uh, specific uh, attention. I want to begin by reading uh, the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. And the subject we will be dealing with uh, this morning is God's Lordship and Love. God's Lordship and Love. Let's look at Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord. or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This morning, God's lordship and love. I want to begin by talking a little bit about the context of redemptive history as we uh, look at this passage. And you know how uh, this began. It began in the beginning, but particularly with the nation of Israel, it began with Abraham. And Abraham was given a promise. He was given a promise initially back in chapter 12 of Genesis that God was going to bless him and make him a great nation, and he would, he's he's going to be called to be a blessing, and in him all the nations, all families would be blessed. And God uh, reaffirmed that promise in chapter 15 by uh, talking about the nation of Israel and how they would be slaves and abused and afflicted and how God was going to bring them out and judge that nation. And God made a unilateral covenant at that point. Uh, He told Abraham to get some animals and cut them in half. This is the way they made covenants and you would typically walk between those pieces Calling down that same curse upon yourself if you failed uh, to keep your promise. but Abraham didn't walk through those pieces that day only God um, as a, pictured as a, a smoking pot and he, he, he walked through those pieces. God made a covenant. He called a curse down on himself should he fail to keep the promise he made. To Abraham. And that's one of the beautiful things about the gospel is that we are the ones who failed to keep the covenant, and yet it was Jesus on the cross who was bearing our sin and bearing the wrath of God for covenant breakers. And God went on, as you remember, in chapter 17 of Genesis and reaffirmed that covenant again to Abraham after he just failed with Hagar. Um, And God gave him a sign of the covenant. And eventually, as you know, God God kept his promise. Uh, Abraham and Sarah were fruitful. And that, you have to think about that before you think about the law of God. That it began with a promise initiated by God. And then it began with a purchase made by God. Israel, as you may recall in chapter 15, is deemed the nation that God purchased for himself. It was a redemptive act. A price was paid, and they were delivered. And uh you you see that they came out of Egypt by the By the blood of the Lamb, the Passover Lamb, which again points us to Jesus Christ, our Passover Lamb that has been sacrificed on Calvary. And then God did something in chapter 19 of Exodus, as well as in chapter 20, in the preface of the commandments. He proclaimed himself. He proclaimed the gospel to Israel, in chapter 19, you remember in chapter 19, verses 4 and following, how God uh, proclaimed to Moses and told Moses to tell the people uh, what He did for them in bringing them out of Egypt and bringing them to Himself. Uh, you have all kinds of themes of Emmanuel in that in those statements, and and here in uh, the beginning of the Decalogue, in the preface, you have these words: "I am." The Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You have God proclaiming to Israel the gospel, proclaiming himself as the Lord, as the king of his people. And um, and then it's at that point, after that proclamation, that God gives this uh, prescription this prescribed behavior that they are supposed to uh, render to him as the king as a form of their gratitude and their utter obedience as it says in chapter 19 for what he has done for them in his love and in his grace and and we'll see uh, Lord willing as you Know as you work your way through the book of Exodus that not only did God uh, proclaim and prescribe the gospel and the law, respectively, uh, God also presided. He, he gave instructions for a tabernacle so he could dwell. His presence would be with his people, and, um, and he provided for them uh, a commission. What they were called to do, to be a kingdom of priests among the nations. And God placed them, he planted Israel, as, as you see in the, in the books of, of the law. He planted Israel in the land of promise uh, so that they might be his people and might be a blessing to all nations. You know, as we think about the preface and you think about the world in which we live in right now, it's a very difficult place to be in this world. This world is sinful. The people in it are sinful. Um, And there's all kinds of uh, difficulties and trials. And the only way for the world to be better is through the church and her partnership with her Lord as she stays on mission with her God and Savior. Now, when you hear that the only way that the world will be better is through the church, uh, that is bound to be a discouragement if you think uh, for any length of time about the condition of the church in the world. Um, The church has a a host of problems, problems. great deal of things uh, for which she needs to repent. I'm sure that when you look in the mirror at yourself, as I do uh, when I look in the mirror, you you probably see a, a great deal of things in your life that you need to repent of in order to be truly useful to the Lord Jesus Christ in his mission to advance his kingdom and extend it throughout this world. But it is true That the only way that the world is going to get better in this particular age, it's through God's working through his church, his bride, his body, his holy nation, his chosen race, his kingdom of priests, his treasured possession. That's who you are. The church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth, Paul told Timothy. It's God's household. You are God's heirs, his sons and daughters. It's easy to forget these things when there's so much trauma going on around you. It's so so easy to cast blame on someone else. And it's easy to forget God's power and his purpose and his his methodology of working, his pattern of working. And we fall into sometimes complaining, sometimes grumbling. Do you find yourself doing that? And sometimes it's not so much complaining, sometimes it's panicking. Sometimes uh, when people think about the trials and difficulties in this life and the injustices that we see, uh, many are led to riot. And some are led to run. And uh, whatever the case is, in both of those uh, behaviors, there is a self-reliance, a relying on my own resources, my own senses, being ruled by emotion. Eugene Peterson was once uh, quoted as saying that he uh, said that the followers of Jesus In order to really have the impact that they're meant to have, they can't resort to violence, nor can they resort to being intimidated and running and hiding. Uh, Truly, um, you are the salt of the earth. That's what Jesus calls you. You're the preservative. You're the ones who keep the world from getting rotten. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. In a dark world, you're the ones, the church. You're the ones responsible for casting the light of God in this world. And what we find uh, being... Uh, redeemed, being salt, being light. What's necessary, wouldn't it be wonderful if everybody in the world loved God, truly loved God, and truly loved their neighbor as himself. That is what God needs from you. God doesn't need anything. That's what God calls you to. That's what He's looking for from you. That's what's necessary from God's standpoint in your life is love. A genuine love for God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and a genuine love for your neighbor the same way you love yourself. And as you embark on loving God and on loving your neighbor. That is what makes the world better. One relationship at a time. That's what the Ten Commandments are really about, aren't they? It's about loving God and loving your neighbor. Jesus himself said in so many places in the gospel accounts, that, that was the greatest commandment, when he was asked. That to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. They're the greatest commandments, he said. And they are summed up in the, that's the summation of the ten commandments. Love never fails. You can have all the gifts, you can have all the resources, all the knowledge, all the wisdom, but God says that if you don't have love, He literally says, you're nothing. It's all a waste. Love never fails. And it never will fail. The Bible says that Don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. You can actually overcome evil with good, not with more evil. I'm sure you remember the famous quote by Edmund Burke, The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. I suppose they wouldn't be too good if they did nothing. But good overcomes evil. And light casts out darkness. Darkness can never cast out light. The darker the night, the brighter the light. We've all heard that. God's love conquered the world. And overcame the world, Jesus said, in the context of, of tribulation. In John sixteen thirty three. In this world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, he said, I have overcome this world. Jesus overcame this world with love. God's love through Christ conquered you. And now you're better because of God's love for you and you're called within your sphere of influence to share that love with others and so in light of this reality about love which the Ten Commandments delineates and outlines how we go about loving there needs to be in your life a total commitment to love to Biblical, Christ-like love. It's an essential an active ingredient. You ever get sick and you look at the ingredients of the medicine that you've been given, and there's that active ingredient, the essential ingredient to make you better. And, and in your life, love is that essential active ingredient for a better world. You want a better world? You need that essential active ingredient of love for God and love for your neighbor. No matter who your neighbor might be, no matter what you might be going through. And what's interesting and maybe ironic about that total commitment to love, that if you are truly, totally committed to love, you must also be totally committed to hate, You must be committed to a hatred of sin, a hatred of wickedness, a hatred of evil. You read this in the Bible in so many places in Psalm 97, 10. God's people are called to hate evil. The same thing is said in Proverbs 8, 13. What is the fear of the Lord? It's a hatred for evil. It said the same thing in Amos 5.15 and Romans 12.9. Abhor what is evil. And the same thing is said in Psalm 34, verse 14. And so many places in the New Testament as well. Psalm 34, 14. Tells us turn away from evil and do, do good, seek peace and pursue it. And that's what it's referring to. When it says to hate, it means to turn away, have nothing to do with. Jude, verse 23, actually goes as far as saying, hating even the garment that has been stained by sinful flesh. Hating even the garment. So a total commitment to love, matched with a total commitment to hate, what is sinful, what is wicked, what is evil, and in light of this, never underestimate your impact and your influence on those around you, and the culture around you, and the world in which you live. God aims for you to have an impact and an influence in this world on the lives of people, on the culture in which we live, and the world in which we live. So you have this command that begins, these commandments that begin with God speaking all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. And what's interesting about this statement And it doesn't come out so often in English translations unless you're reading perhaps the King James or some other old English translation. I am the Lord, your God. The your is singular. The, The your is singular. And we'll get to that in a moment. But what we have here is God is first beginning the Ten Commandments with his name, the Lord, Yahweh. It's the name that was revealed to Moses at the burning bush. And at that that bush, God told Moses, when Moses asked who God was, he, he said, I am that I am. I will be who I will be. And then he followed that by saying, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he's basically saying to Moses, look back at the life of Abraham the life of Isaac, and the life of Jacob. Look at who I was to them. Look at the promises I made to them. And look at how I delivered for them. That's who I am. And God is basically saying to Moses and saying to to you, I will be all I need to be so that you are blessed and you are a blessing in this world. So that... God's purposes for you get accomplished, and as the as God's people looked back on these on this Decalogue and looked back as they eventually got into the Promised Land, that that revelation of the name Lord filled out even more. You remember how we often speak about God revealing His name after Israel sins. In chapter 32, and he reveals himself there again, doing the same thing as he's doing here. He preaches the gospel to his people in the context of their corruption. That's the first thing he does before he ever gives and writes, rewrites the law and gives it to Moses to take to Israel. And he, he says that he's the Lord, the Lord who's with his people. He descended and stood with Moses there. He's Emmanuel. "...he's merciful, he's gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving wickedness, transgression and sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation." And you have there what is a a blessed statement of the, the being of God and how he is, what his character is like, how he relates to his people... And that revelation is, is blessedly unbalanced with the grace and mercy and love and forgiving uh, grace of God. And what Moses' response to uh, that is, is that it says that he quickly bows down and worships. He quickly bows down and worships. He, he prays to God because God has been favorable to his people. In spite of their sin, he prays for the presence of God, for God to go with him. He prays for the pardon of their sin, and he prays that God would take his people as as his very own possession. And so we find that what God is saying to uh, his people, he's saying to you, I've often told parents this same thing, as I, I say it to myself as a parent now, uh, that the Lord simply does not give you commandments in a vacuum, but he, he tells you who he is and what he's done first. Then he starts laying down the law. And that's that's instructive for parents, that that children should obey their parents. They should do what they're told not simply because of what they're told, but, but because of who is telling them. It's your father, it's your mother, it's the people who have been caring for you before you were born. It's the people who feed you, the people who, who have washed you, who watched over you when you, couldn't, when you didn't even know who you were. And, it's, and that's so instructive. That's the way God instructs His people. He first says, this is who I am. This is what I have done. Now here's how you respond to him and what he's done. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, as you well know, is broken up in that, that very order that the Ten Commandments are dealt with in the latter part, and it's dealt with as, as gratitude, a response to what God has done in view of the misery. His mercy shown in view of our misery, and it's, 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 it's called to be matched by our gratitude towards him so the lord i am the lord and then he says you're god and he makes it personal god is a personal god and 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 as we highlighted earlier the you're here is singular because god is seeing his people as he's prescribing his law as one man Remember how he said this back earlier in Exodus, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may worship me, that he might serve me. He sees his people as a corporate collective uh, body, a unified body, as one person. He sees Israel as, as his son, so that implies that God is father. In Jeremiah 31, we're reminded that Israel was also the spouse. He's seen in another illustration is that Israel is a spouse, that God was a husband to his people. He cared for Israel as a husband would care for a wife. And here you see him uh, declaring his lordship, which implies clearly that Israel is the servant of Yahweh. He's the sovereign one. They are the servant. And not only that, but what's, what's found also in this preface is that, that uh, God is a deliverer. And so Israel, they are the saved ones. And um, God is holy and he has set his people apart for his own purposes. And all of those things are true of you as well. God is your father through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the bridegroom of you, the bride of Christ Jesus is your Lord, and you are his servant. You have been saved, and he is your deliverer, your redeemer. And he has set you apart. You are a saint. And he is a holy Savior. But the singularity of the your here, uh, what does that communicate to us? It communicates very clearly to us that we are never called to obedience and uh, as a lonesome individual, we need the body of Christ to walk in obedience. We need one another. We need to, to together walk in obedience. Uh, you know how difficult it is to follow God when you're all by yourself. But we implicitly need, by definition, of who we are. We're a body. We're... we're Together we're a body, you are only a member as an individual. And no part of your body, your physical body, can ever function properly detached from the rest of your body. You can't take your hand off and expect it to survive on its own. You can't take your eye out and expect it to survive on its own. We need the body, our human body, to work as an organism. It works together in, in unison and in harmony with all of the other parts and all of the other systems. It's the same thing with, with obeying God. We need to be in the context of God's people, within the fellowship of the body of Christ. Because we have all kinds of blind spots in our life that keep us from following God as we ought to. Uh, We can recall the very clear passage uh, often looked at in Hebrews chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And that's said to a group of people. It's said to a church. It's said to a corporate body that we are called to watch each other's back and to look into each other's lives and help each other walk the walk and stay committed to Christ. That's one of the things that's actually implied in in the very beginning even before the fall when Adam was created and God had given him uh, uh, commandments to do. And then he immediately says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. He needed help, not only to fulfill the great commission, but he needed help to watch him and to to watch over as he watched over uh, his wife that they would together uh, encourage each other to walk in faithfulness. And that's what God calls spouses to today as well. Um, So the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, out of Egypt. We were, uh, Israel was brought out of the land of Egypt and brought into the promised land. They were brought out of the house of slavery and into the Lord's house. They were to be considered as the Lord's house, and it's the same with us. In Jesus Christ, we were brought out of, uh, out of Egypt in a matter of speaking. We were born from above. We became citizens of heaven when we became converted to Christ. We became uh, not a house of slavery, but a house of servants, as slaves to Jesus, bond servants to Jesus. And we became the actual temple of the Lord, the very house of the Lord, the household of faith, a holy temple to the Lord, the dwelling place of God. What God commands us, he commands us in the context of covenant. And um, We see this played out in the life of Jesus, and it's so ironic in the life of Christ. He talks about, in Luke 9, at the Mount of Transfiguration, he talks about his own exodus, and of all places, his exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of the king, had become like Egypt in their failure to walk with God. And he did that so that you and I, by faith in him, might enter into the land of heaven. But he also did that so that the life of heaven might enter into you and might spill out through you into this world. You simply cannot deny the radical difference that is meant to result when we love God and love our neighbor in radical ways. God, through Jesus, has loved you in a radical way, in a very dramatic way. And that is meant to replicate itself in you and through you and have a similar impact in this earth. You can't deny it. You cannot deny the difference that has taken place in the life of a converted individual. And how on earth is it possible for that radical new creation to take place in your life and somehow not impact, somehow not affect, somehow not influence the world around you, the culture around you? That makes absolutely no sense at all if you are inhabited by God, if you have become a temple of the living God, if God is living inside of you and has transformed you to the extent of being making you a new creation, a brand new genesis has been given to you, that wherever your sphere of influence is, you're supposed to have an impact, and that impact is supposed to look like you loving your neighbor the same way you love yourself. That those those kingdom characteristics are supposed to play out in relationships, in your work ethic, in your sphere of influence. You're meant to have a major impact in this world and an impact for Christ and for His kingdom. Never underestimate your impact, your influence on those around you, the culture around you, the world in which you live. You're meant to have that impact. Just before we close, I want to talk about how that plays out. We're, this, this command, these Ten Commandments, are, are a call to love. They're a call to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor the same way we love ourselves. And we're called to do that in, in small ways, and we're also called to do that from time to time in very radical ways. It's the whole spectrum we're called to love. And God will use those who choose love and refuse lawlessness. In major ways. But again, we have to come back to the gospel. What on earth is going to make you love the Lord and love your neighbor, even in a small way, not to mention a radical way that we're often called to? And what's going to do that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what God has done through Jesus Christ, his Son, by the power of his Spirit, so that you might be saved. It's God's love for you. We love because God first loved us. And that is, as you know, the litmus test for a true follower of Jesus Christ. Do you love your neighbor the same way you love yourself? Do you love the people of God? God will use those who choose to love and refuse lawlessness because of the gospel. You may remember how this plays out in the New Testament. And we look at this passage often because it it is so key to um, how this happens in our life in the book of Ephesians chapter 3, we find Paul on his knees praying to God. Because he wants God to work through him in a major way. Paul wants to see the kingdom extended through his life. He wants to see that play out. And and he prays in chapter 3 of Ephesians, verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees... Before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Now the Spirit comes to glorify Jesus Christ. The Spirit comes to glorify who Christ is and what Christ has accomplished. In His cross, in His crown, in His coming, the Spirit of God comes to magnify Jesus Christ to you. That's His purpose. That's His duty within the context of the Trinity. And strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being. That's what the Spirit comes to do. And here's the reason. It says it in verse 17 of chapter 3. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. And that that doesn't simply mean that if you don't believe, Christ won't dwell in you. It means that Christ finds a dwelling place. You're a temple. You're the tabernacle of God. And Christ dwells. He resides. He presides. He rules over your life as you exercise faith in him as you walk by faith you trust him to be the active ingredient so to speak to actively and daily use you to make his love known by your life and by your lips so that christ might dwell in your hearts through faith your heart what comes in what fills your heart comes out of your mouth, comes out of your life, that Christ would be the one who's honored in your body, as it says in Philippians chapter 1. Paul said that he's determined that Christ would be honored in his body, whether by life or by death. It's that type of abandon, that type of radical love, that God uses in powerful ways. And Paul goes on in in verse 17, That you being rooted and grounded in love. And what, what most theologians notify here is that this is talking about love relationships between the people of God. That you be rooted and grounded in love for your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that's such a key component. Loving God's people. Because that's the way the world comes to know the truth about the gospel. By this, all men will know you are my disciples, Jesus said, if you love one another as he has loved us in a sacrificial way. It says in John 13 and John 15, Father, make them one so the world might know that you've sent your son. That so many times the reason why the church of Jesus Christ in this world is not having the impact is because God's people simply do not love one another. And that needs to be something that we clearly identify as a priority. And when we have that, those loving relationships, what it it results in, It says that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength. There that word strength again. The Bible says that the Spirit, that by the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit. And here it says that you might have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That together as we love one another, we come to rest in, rejoice in, the love that Christ has for us. Paul said that's what drives him. It's the love of Christ that constrains me, he says, because he's convinced that one died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who died and was raised again on our behalf. It's the same thing he said in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified. With Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. That all of his life flowed out of the love of Christ for him and the sacrifice of Christ on his behalf. And that's how we grow to understand the the greatness of Jesus' love for us. And the whole purpose of this, it says, is that we might be, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19, that we might be filled with the fullness of God. And that takes you right back to that imagery and exodus of the temple and its tabernacle, rather, being filled with the fullness of God, filled with the glory of God. And that is, that is necessary background for even thinking about What does God want me to do? That you are filled with the fullness of God, resting in the love of God, loving one another because the glory of God um, revealed, the very being of God, as it says in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 14 and 15, that according to the glory he might grant you to be strengthened, the glory of God. It says something very similar to this in Philippians chapter 1 uh, verse 27 and following how it talks about that we would fight as one man with one mind fighting side by side for the faith of the gospel, uh, not daunted by by anyone and and those who would seek to bring persecution. But it's fighting side by side and, and what what fuels that is the gospel. And what the gospel fuels within you is this mindset of counting other people more significant than yourself. And the end result of all of this, as we go back to Ephesians, it says very clearly, now unto him who is able, and the implication is obvious: he's able in as much as we're filled with the fullness of God, inasmuch as we're 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 rejoicing in the love of Christ inasmuch as we are loving one another, inasmuch as the Spirit of God is filling our hearts and exalting Jesus and magnifying him to us. And this is a prayer, remember, that Paul is praying, that when these things are done, God is able to do immeasurably more than anything we ask of him and could possibly imagine from him. And that looks like impacting culture, impacting this world. Jesus said, as you know, let your light so shine before men. We said earlier that you are not only the salt of the earth, but the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and bring glory to your Father who is in heaven. Glory is the result of obedience. Glory is the result of obeying the law. And love of God, the love of God, is the the foundation of that obedience. Glory is what you should want to see come to God through your obedience to God. And the things that are going to make that happen in your life is a real self-sacrificing, self-denial in view of Calvary. Because Jesus denied himself, because Jesus laid his his life down, that with the same Christ-like attitude, you're able to overcome in this world through him. John said in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 11, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and they, uh, they conquered, verse 11, I uh, was reading verse 12, And they have conquered him, uh, meaning Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, the gospel, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. And we see that sort of abandon, an abandon to God's love. You see the same thing in Acts chapter 20 in the life of uh, the Apostle Paul, where he says in verse 24, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And as you keep reading, he calls them to follow his example Jesus says the same thing to his disciples if you look at John chapter 12, verse 25, for example. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And you see that same sort of abandon as Jesus speaks about it um, through the writer of the third gospel account in Luke's account. In Luke chapter 16, uh, verse 13, for example, it says, "No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other." You cannot serve God and money. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week, as we, Lord willing, deal with the first uh, few commandments in in Luke chapter 14. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Um, So therefore, anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, and you see that same sort of spirit given after the law was given back in Exodus and the people of Israel disobeyed God's law, you find that at the end of the, uh, the Torah, um, the tribe of, of Levi is, is commended because they, they understood this abandon to the love of God. You see it says in verse uh, 8 and 9 of Deuteronomy 33, and of Levi he said, Give to Levi your Thumian And your Urim to your godly one, whom you tested at Maza, with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they, meaning the Levites, they observed your word and kept your covenant. And therefore God set them apart to influence the nation, to teach the nation God's ways. This is the kind of self-sacrifice, self-denial, that's necessary to utterly obey the Lord. And we do that because of what God has done in Christ for us. God bless you. Let the gospel be central. Let the kingdom of God rule in your life and rule through your life as Jesus seeks to extend that kingdom through his church. God bless you and keep you always.